Turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I want to start with a verse we looked at last uh, Thursday night. Uh, I want to just uh, remind you of what this verse has said. So James chapter 4, when you get there, look at verse 11. Uh, James 4.11, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judges his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Another. So anybody who chooses to go against God's law, any moral principle of God's law, uh, through that behavior is saying basically that God's law is under their control. It's unnecessary. They don't need it. They can kind of decide for themselves what to do. They can decide what is right. They can decide what is wrong. And they don't need God to tell them that. Uh, a person who does that really believes that they are in control. They think they have the power to decide whatever. Uh, they, have the, they can make their own moral choices. Uh, the battle always is over, folks, who's in, who's in control. From the very beginning when Satan fell, all through the, the fall in the garden until now, it's always about who's going to be in charge, who's going to be in control. And people in their pride believe that they can do whatever they want to do, and God has nothing to say about it. And you meet those people every day. <laughs> if you're out in this world at all, you're going to run across people like that who believe that they uh, can do whatever they want to do, and God really doesn't have any part in that. Uh, mankind has declared themselves to be in control. And they really think that should end the discussion. It's finished. Uh, they're going to be in charge, and nobody else needs to say anything about it. Well, James wants to make very clear how much control we, w- we really have. And so he begins an illustration for us, beginning in verse 13. Uh, So look at verse 13, if you would. Who's really in charge? Who's really in control? Uh, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. So here's a person who decides to start a new business. They decide they have a product to sell or an idea to market or whatever, And so they go to a city where this particular idea or this particular product will do well. At least they believe that it will. So they make plans to go to that place. Uh, They're going to buy what they need. They're going to sell their product, going to market their idea, uh, and make money on this whole venture as a result. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all wrong with that whatsoever. They're not sinning by doing that. Uh, There's no sin in seeking to profit on an idea or a plan that you've made. So what's the problem here? What is James trying to tell us? Well, actually, there's two problems here. Look at verse 14, if you would. Below the surface, they're making two mistakes. Uh, Verse 14, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. The first problem they have is the problem of presumption. The problem of presumption. Uh, They have presumed that their plan is going to go just like they decided it's going to go. They've decided that life is going to last a long, long time. They're going to do exactly what they want to do. They're going to accomplish all their goals, and life is going to go that way for them. Now, you can see the presumption in two words there in in verse 14. The words are, we will. We will. Now, think back to what we've talked about in Isaiah chapter 14 when Satan fell. Five times, what did Satan say? I will. I will. I will, I will. Whenever we use those words, uh, we've got to realize we're walking in dangerous territory because we're presuming that everything that we do is right, everything that we do is in our control, and we have the power to do what we want to do. That is an ill-founded presumption. We can make plans for the next 10 years if we want to. We have no guarantee at all that we'll live long enough to make any of those plans or that we'll have the health necessary to do what we've decided to do. Having long-range goals is fine, as long as we don't presume that those goals are going to be met exactly as we decide they would. 
I'm going to retire from my other job in December. Now, there are some things saying that I want to do now after I retire. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with making those kind of plans as long as we don't think it's going to happen just because we said so, just because we think it will. I've known folks who have made plans to retire uh, and have died before they were able to fulfill any of those plans. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid here. That's just true. It's presumptuous to think that we can make any plan that we want to make and it's going to happen just like we said it would. We don't have that kind of control. We think we do. We really don't. We don't make those decisions. Uh, Verse 14 is very clear in telling us that we have no control over our lives whatsoever. Life is not in our hands. It is in God's hands. And we, that life can vanish without a trace. Look how your life is described there in verse 14. I'm sure you know this verse very well. Look what it says. He says, your life is like a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Now, if you like a good cup of tea, what you'll do in the morning, whenever you do this, you'll put this pot on the stove and you'll heat that water up. How do you know when the water's boiling? That steam starts rolling out, right? So the water, the steam's rolling out of that pot. And so you turn the heat off uh, to pour your tea. And what happens to that steam? It disappears immediately. I mean, it's gone just like that. Now, every time you make a cup of tea, see that steam rolling out and think about your life. <laughs> because that's what your life is like, just like that. Uh, your life is here for a little time, and then it vanishes just that quickly. Uh, when we consider our lives in the light of eternity, our lives are just a blip on the screen and really nothing more. And somebody who makes plans and then expects those plans to go as they said they would are under, are under the mistaken belief that his or her life will last much longer than it's going to. God can make a plan that has eternal effects. Our lives last as long as the steam in that kettle lasts. And when it's gone, it's gone forever, and so are all the plans that went along with it. So the first problem we have in this fellow making these plans is a problem of presumption. Here's the second problem. It's a problem of providence. A problem of providence. Look at verse 15. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. What you ought to say is, if God wants me to do this, if this is God's will, if this is God's plan, then it will happen like it's supposed to. Now, this fellow in this uh, illustration James is proposing to us here makes a plan and assumes it's the right plan because he made it. Because he decided on it, it's got to be right. Now, that is certainly not the case in most, in, in most times we make plans. It's the very foolish believer who makes a plan and doesn't see God to reveal his plan first. Now, you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble if you check with God before you make your own plans. See what he would have you do before you decide for yourself what you're going to do. And it's a very foolish believer also who makes a plan and then tries to fit God into it. Now, I'm sure you have never done that. I do that every so often. Not as much as I used to, but every so often I'll make a plan and then somehow try to manipulate that plan to make sure God approves of it. Well, that also is a a, a foolish thing to do. We don't fit God into our plans. We We simply don't do that. It's a wise believer who decides instead, find out God's will first. See what he wants first, and then structure your plan around what God wants to do. You'll always win doing that. You see, all God has to do is snap his fingers, and your plans are gone. Just like that. Uh, I love the verse in Psalm 37, 23. It says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. When you were born, in fact, before you were born, God ordered your steps. And I believe, I take that very, very literally. I believe God ordered every step that I take. (laughs) Now, I may not always take those steps, but God has an order to my steps. He knows every step that he wants me to take. And so it would be very wise for me before I take any step to determine if the step that I'm taking is in his order, if that step is according to his will. 
Uh, God's will should be our consideration before we make any plan. Any prayer that we pray should always be prefaced with, Lord, we only want your will. I only want your will to be done. That should be every prayer that you make, and that way you'll always pray in God's will, and what you get will always be exactly what God wants you to have. Uh, God can take, and I'm sure, again, you've experienced this, I know I have, God can take your best laid plan and make shambles of it if it's not according to his will. He'll just poof, and it'll just crumble. Uh, that's God taking care of you, by the way. I know it frustrates us when he does that. That's really God taking care of us. He's making sure we don't make wrong choices or take wrong steps. So here's the questions. Number one, who do you think is really in control? I mean, when you get right down to it, who do you think is really in control of your life, in control of your plans? And number two, do you structure your life with the understanding that God is in control? Or do you set your life out presuming that you're in control? Again, a very faulty presumption to make. And in case we miss the point, I want to say it to you one more time. It always helps me to have it repeated. I am not in control. God is in control. You are not in control. God is in control. He is going to control your life however. If he's got to take you kicking and screaming all the way through it, he's going to have control of your life. And the sooner we accept that, and the sooner we operate according to that, the better life's going to be for us as a result. And if we choose not to accept that, you're going to see your plans go up just like the vapor here that he talks about in verse 14, and your life is going to be a waste for the cause of Christ. And so here's the conclusion to all this in verse 16. He said, but now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. James says here, when I make my own plan and don't allow God to make the plan for me, what I'm doing is I'm boasting. Now, boasting refers to being proud or self-satisfied. How is this boasting? Well, again, this fellow makes a plan. He's determined how the plan is going to go. He's decided how it's all going to turn out. And they're proud of what they accomplished, even though they haven't accomplished anything yet. But the plan is so good, it is so foolproof, that they know it's going to go just like they planned it out. They've decided the whole course of this plan before it's even been carried out. That person has decided they can set a plan, decide how it's going to go, decide the outcome of the plan, and then be proud of the outcome that has not yet occurred. And it all is because they're so intelligent, and they're so resourceful, and they have such ingenuity, that it's just got to turn out the way they think. And so they boast about that plan. Uh, that happens in corporations, that happens in businesses every day, and it happens in many homes as well, where they set out plans believing God's going to just fulfill this plan because they set it out. If God is not included in the plan, no matter how good the plan is, boasting about the good results of that plan is evil, according to verse 16. If God is not ahead of the plan, the plan is evil before it ever gets off the ground. And any pride that I take in that plan is evil as well. And that includes business plans, and that includes ministry plans, and that includes personal plans. I don't care how good a church sounds as far as the plan they make. If God's not in it, it's an evil plan. God's got to be a part of that. God's got to be a part of every plan that we make at this church or in any church, and every believer's life as well. Any plan without God as a starting point is an evil plan. And we can't give ourselves credit for how it turns out if it hasn't even turned out yet. And so here's the conclusion. James, as at the end of this chapter, gives us the most concise, the most succinct, the most understandable definition of sin that we could ever find. Verse 17, I'm sure also you may have memorized at some point in time. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. There it is. If you want to know what sin is, knowing to do good and not doing it. 
Sin is knowing the right way to go and going the other way instead. Sin is understanding God's standard and then reworking that standard so we can justify whatever it is that we want to do. Now, what you've seen over the past decades is people have done almost everything they possibly can to blur the line between right and wrong. They've kind of blended everything together so it all looks the same. That's the whole idea, is to make everything look the same. And that way they can do whatever they want to do and nobody can condemn them for it. But I want us to see what Scripture says about every person born onto this earth. Go to Romans chapter 2. Go back to Romans chapter 2. Uh, people may say that, you know, there's not a clear line between right and wrong, but God has a different uh, thought about that, and certainly God's thought is much more important than anything any man would have to say. Romans chapter 2. I believe this chapter was written for our world today, at least a good part of it. In the first verse, you'll notice he's addressing those who want to find an excuse for their sin. They want to find some reason to be able to sin, and they want to do whatever they want to do without any consequences to it. And Paul says in verse 1 that they are inexcusable. No excuse. He says in verse 3, they're going to face the judgment of God. He says in verse 6 that God will render to every man according to his deeds. So Paul is assuming here in this chapter that every person on earth knows what what is right and what is wrong. If they're going to be inexcusable, if they're going to be held accountable by God, they have to have been told the standard that they have to follow. And every person must be aware of that standard. Now, how can Paul be so sure of that? Well, look at verse 14. It says, though, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, so he's talking about the written law, the Gentiles didn't get that, the Jews did. When the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature, do naturally the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts to mean while accusing or else excusing one another. Now look right square in the middle of that verse again where it says, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. God has written his law into the heart of every person ever born. He scratched that thing into their hearts. There's not one person who is born into this world who does not come into this world equipped to know God's law. God gives them a conscience, and the law that he has is the standard by which that conscience operates. And so a person can plead ignorance. They can say, I have no idea what's right or what is wrong. I'm not sure what to do here. God has put that in them. They can't say that. That that idea has no bearing whatsoever and no basis. Every person has come with the creator's law written on their hearts, inside them. And they're accountable to that law no matter what they choose to do with it. I'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. So Paul says here, there's a conscience in every person, and within that conscience is God's law written in there, and that conscience makes them aware of God's law. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 1. It says, now the Spirit Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, watch it, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. It is possible for a person to sear their conscience. Now, I'm no cook, but I do know this. I know if you sear something, what happens is you seal all the juice inside whatever you're searing. You create a coating on the outside of that, and all the juice stays inside. You seal it all in. Well, if somebody sears their conscience, what have they done? All the information inside that conscience has been sealed off. It can't get through. It's been sealed. It's been seared. And so none of that, nothing that's in that conscience influences what they do. 
How does a person sear their conscience? Look at verse 1 again of 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says there again, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy. What they do, a person sears their conscience every time they do what opposes God and what opposes God's word. Go a few pages over to the book of Titus. Go to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, look at verse 15. Titus 1.15 says, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Uh, The conscience can be seared through defilement. As a person persists in exposing themselves to things that are depraved or filthy, they sear their conscience. Pretty soon that conscience no longer reveals to them what is right and what is wrong. They've sealed it off. They've lost the moral compass God gave to them, and they can't distinguish what is good from what is bad. And that's where our society is today, exactly where we're at. That's why believers got to be very, very careful at what they expose themselves to. Be very careful what you expose yourself to, because, you see, you can uh, risk searing your conscience, sealing off your conscience. A constant defilement will begin to sear that conscience, and even a believer can begin to think differently about things and think differently about God because that conscience has been seared. Now, God still holds every person accountable. Uh, Be very clear about this. The searing of the conscience is not God's fault. (laughs) He didn't make us do that. We chose to do that on our own. We sear that conscience because we chose to do that. If that person can no longer distinguish between between right and wrong, as many in our day can, they are still inexcusable. Uh, They'll still be judged. And sin is still determined by what a person should know, whether they know it or not, what they should know had they not sealed off the conscience that God gave to them. Now, for a believer who has an active conscience, I assume all of you have an active conscience here tonight. Here's how it works. You are given a moral choice. Something lays out before you, and you have a choice to make. And you have two routes you can take, uh, two possible uh, options to that choice that God's, that's been laid before you. You can do that thing or not do that thing. At that very moment, the Spirit of God is working through that active conscience to make help you know what the right choice is. Uh, Jesus called that reproving of the Spirit in John 16, 8. We give it the word convicting. But either way, what the Spirit is doing is talking to you and saying to you, here's the right choice and here's the wrong choice. Now, with the revelation of the Spirit, that believer knows the right choice to make. There is no doubt what they ought to do because the Spirit has revealed that to them. Now, I know Christians talk a lot about gray areas, and they talk a lot about God not being clear at times as to what sin is. Most of the time, believers who say that are providing a cover for themselves because of something they really want to do, and they're finding an excuse for it. But if I have not seared my conscience, and if I ask God for wisdom in the choice I make, and if I don't let the flesh get in the way, I'm going to know the right choice to make. I'm going to know the wrong choice to make. And knowing the right choice, if I choose against it, that's sin. If I know to do good, which the Spirit reveals to me, and I don't do it, that is sin at that point. And every time I know the right choice to make, and every time I choose to do the opposite, that is sin. And it's true no matter how I try to rationalize it, how many times I try to make excuses for it. I think we try to make things way too difficult. I think we do that because we want to get away with some things, because that's what this old sin nature wants to do. It is very, very simple. God's made it very, very basic. If I want to know the right choice, from the wrong choice, just ask God to show you. And he'll show you. (laughs) 
He's obligated to show you. Why? Because James couldn't say what he says in verse 17 if God didn't obligate to show you the right and the wrong. You can't do that in your flesh. You don't have, you're not equipped. So, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, you must have some way of knowing to do good. Otherwise, God can't make that statement. The only reason for not knowing is not asking. <laughs> if you don't know the right choice to make, it's because you haven't asked God what choice you ought to make. So, if we have seared our conscience and make the wrong choice, we sin. If we choose not to ask and make the wrong choice, we sin. If we ask and still make the wrong choice, we sin. And in all cases, God will hold us accountable for that sin. There's no excuses. And so verse 17 is a great verse to know, a great verse to memorize, because it's one of the greatest verses that God will give us on how to keep ourselves from sinning. When you know to do good, do good. And if you're not sure the choice to make, ask God for it, and the Spirit of God will reveal that to you. And the reason you see so much going on in your world today is because so many of your world has seared their conscience. They have no idea what right and wrong is. And folks, that's your calling now, is to talk to them and let them see what God's Word says about what's right and wrong. Now, with all that said, we move into chapter 5. And we're going to make a, a bit of a shift here now as we walk into this chapter. When we first started this series many months ago now, we said chapter, chapter 5 is one of the main proofs for the idea that this book is doctrinally not written to 21st century Christians in the church age. This book has spiritual lessons for us but the doctrine of this book is not for those of us in the church age. And as we go through this chapter, the first six verses tonight, we're going to see uh, that to be the case. This is not doctrine for the church age. It does not match anything that Paul taught. I want to remind you of what we started with, just so we kind of refresh ourselves. The book of James, doctrinally, is written to the 12 scattered Jewish tribes. That's what it's written to. And those are Jews which have gone through the church age and are now caught in the horrors of the tribulation. This is doctrine for Jews in the, in the midst of the tribulation. We're going to see that tonight. We'll see that much more next week as well. So what's presented here is not present day doctrine. Uh, this is future doctrine. Not applying to you because none of you are going to go through the tribulation. Now, we're going to try to make spiritual application from this, but the doctrine is not for us. So let's read the first six verses of chapter 5. It says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down uh, your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Now, I want to have you do a little Bible study tonight. So take your Bible and go to Isaiah chapter 3. This is not doctrine for us. This is doctrine for the 12 tribes. Let me show you uh, some proof for that. Uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 3, look at verse 14. Isaiah three fourteen. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof. For ye have eaten up the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What mean ye that ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord, saith, uh, the Lord God of hosts? I'll go to chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5. 
And look at verse 8. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In mine ears, saith the Lord of hosts, of a truth many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. I now go to the New Testament, go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And when you get there, look at verse 24. Luke chapter 6, verse 24. <clears throat> it says that, but Woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. And then if I, want, I want you to consider the, the story in Luke chapter 16. You don't need to turn there, but the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The only thing held against that rich man was the fact that he was rich. The only thing that God had against that fellow was that he was rich and didn't use his riches to help a poor man, Lazarus. Now, everything I just read to you from Isaiah and from Luke, uh, what God is telling us is that uh, trusting money and using wealth to oppress people uh, is, not the, is going to be a problem for folks who do that. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ says the same thing as he ministered before the cross. He warns of trusting money and using wealth to oppress the poor. And you'll notice in Isaiah that is specifically a Jewish message. He's talking to his people. In Luke chapter 6, he's talking to Jews at, the, at that time, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Luke chapter 16, again, he's speaking to Jewish people. In the, each case, is very, very clear. God condemns those who are rich and sends them to hell. That's what, every passage I just read to you, that's exactly what it says. Uh, that cannot be applied to this age because you know Paul never said anything like that. <laughs> Nothing in the gospel says that you can be saved unless you're rich. If you're rich, you're going to hell. It's not in there. That is a message after the church age for the age of the tribulation. And that's when God condemns them. Now, why is that? It's because of the program of the tribulation time. The rich go along with the program. What's the program? The program is accept the Antichrist, worship him, and take the mark. That is the program of the tribulation. Uh, accept, worship the Antichrist, uh, take the mark, and worship him. So, if that's the case, then those who are rich are those who do that, because they can buy or sell because they have the mark. Uh, those who are oppressed, those who are poor, are poor because they refuse to worship the Antichrist, and they refuse to take the mark. And therefore, they can't buy, and they can't sell. And they are pressed more and more by those who refuse to sell to them what they won't refuse to sell to them because they don't have the mark. So the rich people get more, the poor people get less, and the folks who are poor can't get any more because they can't buy anything because they don't have the mark they need to make it happen. Remember back in our study in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus Christ says there that if you take care of the Jews, you'll get to heaven. You'll have eternal life. That's exactly what he says in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is a tribulation passage that says to you, if you take care of the Jews during the tribulation time and give them what they need, God will bless you by giving you eternal life. Now, do you find that anywhere in Paul's writings? No, you don't. <laughs> that is not church age doctrine. You won't find that in anything Paul wrote. It's just simply not there. So now look to uh, James chapter 5 again. Uh, Paul tells us salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ with nothing else. James says salvation comes if you're nice to the poor. If you're not nice to the poor, God's going to send you to hell. That's what it says. And that's because, again, of the program of the tribulation time. Now, look at verse 3. 
He says, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. He says that you've heaped up treasure for the last days. What are the last days? Well, in this context, the last days are the final judgment, is the final judgment that comes as Jesus Christ comes back to this earth and settles the score at his second coming. If you look at, continue on reading, the prayers that the Lord hears during this time are the prayers of the oppressed. And they cry against the rich who are oppressing them. Those whom they have oppressed are the very ones that are witnesses against them. And the condemnation comes through those that they've oppressed. And God's judgment comes upon them. Look at verse 4. The end of verse 4. He says, The cries of them which have reaped uh, are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That phrase, the Lord of, Lord of Sabaoth, means the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament. That is exclusively an Old Testament reference to God. You'll never see that phrase once in the New Testament except in this context. And the context is uh, that name always is given to God as a military leader. The Lord of hosts is a God who's carrying, bringing an army with him and going to enact his judgment upon somebody uh, through this army. So what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the end times. When the tribulation ends and Jesus Christ comes back and comes to this earth to settle the score, he's bringing an army with him. The Lord of hosts is coming to settle the score. And by the way, you're going to be in that army when it shows up uh, at the end of the tribulation. So when he comes back the second time, he's going to lead that army and bring this earth into judgment. That's what verse 4 is talking about there, talking about judging those who have taken land uh, that belong to the Jews. Look at the verse again. It says, Behold, the higher the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them that have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Look, he's talking about the field that they've taken from them, reaped down their field. Folks, I'll tell you what. Uh, the entire war going on in the Middle East right now is all about a piece of property. What's it's all about? It's all about a piece of land. That the Jews have settled in and the Arabs don't think they ought to be there. And so there's a fight going on as to who's going to own that property. That's what he's talking about here in chapter 5 and verse 4. The whole idea clear through the tribulation time is who owns that property. And God says my people own it. And the Arabs say he, that he, they don't. And when the end comes, when the second coming occurs, they're going to get their land. They're going to get it. They may go through a lot before they get it, but they're going to get it. And I'm going to tell you something else. Until the second coming, there's going to be wars about that property. And if this is the last war, there's another one coming. Uh, they're just going to keep on going until finally uh, the, God settles the whole thing at the end of the tribulation time. And until he does that, the war is going to continue. Now, look at verse 5. He says, you've lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Uh, these pe rich people have increased themselves by slaughtering those who are poor and in the process, they've lost everything. They're wanton as a result. They've gained it all and lost it at the same time. They might have gained the land, but they've lost salvation in the process of doing that. And the real condemnation comes in verse 6. It says, You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Uh, there are those who are following what God commanded them to do during that time, and they're being killed by those who are violating God's command. The just are being killed by the unjust. And that because the entire system is against them, they have no way of fighting back whatsoever. That's what the tribulation time is all about. The sinners have condemned the innocent, and the, in, the sinners can do the innocent rather can do nothing about it because they can't do anything to fight back unless they take the mark and worship the beast, and they can't do that. Now, 
That's the doctrinal interpretation of that passage. That's what that passage, I believe, is all about. It's all tribulation doctrine. As we close tonight, let me give you some spiritual application from this as well. And it's a little tough because this passage is so doctrinal. Uh, we're going to be very careful not to go too far uh, in, in resting the passage from its context. But here's the deal. I believe that what this represents to us spiritually are those who are, are taking, are gathering things up, are concerned about the things of the world, they have their priorities completely confused, and they're making important things that are not important whatsoever. They represent to us, these rich people in this passage represent to us, those folks who have no interest whatsoever in spiritual things. All they're concerned about is what can they get here? How, what can they gather up for themselves here? And you rub shoulders with people like that every day. You see them on TV or online or wherever you see uh, media, and you'll see them all the time. You meet people every week, I'm sure, who believe they have life all covered because they provided for themselves. So life is taken care of. It's all handled because they have provision. They've taken care of themselves materially, and therefore life is just fine. I want to take you to one more passage before we close, and I go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And I'm assuming this also is a familiar story to you, but it certainly illustrates spiritually what James is telling us in the first six verses of chapter 5. Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. Notice the I wills there. This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast, laid, which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There is the spiritual type of what James is talking about in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. That rich fellow thinks he has all the bases covered. He has all these material possessions. Here's the problem. He's got a limited focus. <laughs> he's got a limited focus. He's not considering anything beyond what he has right now. He's not looking past this life. He's living as though this life is all there is. And God sticks himself into that situation and says, What about the second after your soul leaves your body? What happens then? And of course, all the material possessions in this world stay behind. They don't help a person one bit to prepare for eternity. Now, believers and unbelievers alike make this mistake. Uh, there are unbelievers who live like this, like this, all, this life is all there is, and they die and wind up in hell. And some believers live also like this life is all there is, and they wind up at the judgment seat of Christ with wood, hay, and stubble, nothing to show for this life whatsoever. And I think many right times, many reasons, the, the, the reason rather is to say why many believers don't seek to prepare the loss around them for eternity is because believers aren't prepared for eternity themselves. They're not take, keeping their eyes on eternity themselves. They're not focused there. And I'm sure this is way too simplistic, but then that's kind of how I work. Uh, and I'm sure there's other factors at play. But if you get the, down to the basics, here's what I think life is really all about. Sabaka's philosophy of life. You ready? This is spellbinding, I'm sure. Number one. Prepare for eternity yourself. That's number one. Make sure eternity is settled for yourself. That's number one. 
Number two, live with eternity in full view. Make sure eternity is what you see every time you step out of your door and while you're in your door as well. Make sure eternity is where your view is. And number three, do all that you can to prepare others for eternity. (laughs) Prepare for it yourself. Keep eternity in full view. And then everybody you meet, try to prepare them for eternity as well. And each one of those things is dependent upon the one before. I can't live with eternity in full view if I'm not prepared for eternity myself. And I cannot prepare others for eternity without being, having eternity in full view myself. Get it settled yourself. Get your eyes on eternity. And then keep your eyes open for everybody else you can meet who needs to be prepared for eternity. It was so cool Sunday night to see Mary and David walk in with this fellow with them. I see there was a fellow out there who needed somebody to recognize that he needs some idea about what's going on with eternity. Now, he may have been saved. We're not sure yet. But regardless, here he comes and sits down in church with us. And here's the gospel. Matt was very clear at the gospel. I noticed he was very clear to let this fellow know what the gospel is all about. So he walked out of this place knowing what eternity is all about. If he didn't know before, he knew walking out. See, that's what we're supposed to do. There's been three people, like you said, three out there this week that you met. Three people in our parking lot. That didn't happen by chance, folks. <laughs> they just didn't happen to show up there. They knew, God knew rather, they needed somebody to at least let them know there's a place where they can come to find out what eternity is all about. And God put them there and put Matt there uh, to let them know. You see what it's about? Get it settled yourself. Get your eyes focused there. And then start looking. And if you'll start looking, you're going to find all sorts of people who need to know what eternity is all about. Our job is then to say, hey, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you about eternity. Uh, so if we have eternity settled, which I'm sure we all do, let me give you some questions as we close. Ask yourself these questions and uh, obviously answer them to yourself. Number one, do you live your life with eternity in full view? Do you live your life with eternity in full view? Do I have making the best of this life in my view? Or do I have laying up treasures for eternity in full view? Where's my focus? And then ask yourself this. What am I doing and how much am I doing to help prepare others for eternity? That's the bottom line to life on this earth for a believer. There is nothing wrong with having things as long as those things don't cloud or interfere with your view of eternity. If they get in the way of your perspective, like this fellow in Luke 16, or Luke 12 rather, if they get in the way of your perspective, they need to be taken out, removed. Because to do God's work and to fulfill God's purpose, we must have our sights and our eyes fixed solely on eternity and must not let anything cloud that perspective, no matter what it might be. And again, if you'll do that, and if I'll do that, you'll be amazed you begin to show up. And you can tell them how to prepare for eternity. All right, let's stand.